0: if you have a Bible with you, please open it to the book of Exodus chapter 20. If you don't have one with you, you can find a Bible in the pocket of the pew in front of you, and you can find Exodus 20 on page 57 of that Bible. I hope, as Josh has already mentioned, that each of you had a absolutely wonderful Thanksgiving. Um, I know that many of you have multiple locations of families, and so you probably didn't just have one Happy Thanksgiving. You probably, and I hope, had multiple Happy Thanksgivings. Um, if you had to go to three of them, I hope you had three of them and not just one. Uh, that seems a little bit better. But uh, my family and I were were alone. I we had family in town. Uh, we do have family that lives around us, but they were all out of town. So we were able to gather together. Um, we deviated from tradition. Uh, we did not have a turkey. We had a ham, um, which was more delicious than turkey, and we are not apologetic for that at all. Um I always thought that turkey was something of an odd choice to become sort of the main meat of Thanksgiving. It's not something that is sort of traditionally American outside of Thanksgiving, and it certainly isn't even our favorite bird to eat. Uh, chicken uh, quite clearly is our favorite bird. And and you might think, well, then it's, it's really fancy, but frankly, turkey isn't really all that fancy at all. Why not just eat hot dogs? Honestly, it seems like a much better way to go in a number of different ways. You know, how much easier life would be if we just traditionally ate hot dogs for Thanksgiving, because let's be honest, the turkey is not the center of Thanksgiving anyways. When it comes to the food, all of the side dishes are really the center of Thanksgiving. And so think of all the time that you could spend making more of those wonderful, beautiful, carb-rich side dishes if you didn't have to worry about that 30-pound turkey in the oven. 30 pounds of hot dogs can be cooked real fast. So they're a much better option, much more American option, by the way. Do you know that turkey is not an approved space food by NASA? But hot dogs are an approved space food by NASA. We eat 20 billion pounds, or 20 billion, not pounds, unless you eat one hot dog that's a pound. You eat 20 billion hot dogs every year in America. And if you think that hot dogs are too low-brow for you, you need to know that there is indeed a restaurant in New York City where you can buy a hot dog for the low, low sum of $2,300. It is made with pure Wagyu beef. Um, I'm sure that it's fantastic. It has uh, got caramelized onions and sauerkraut on it. I know you don't expect sauerkraut on something that you paid $2,300 for, but there it is. And it's topped with, of course, caviar, because that that $2,300 has got to come from somewhere. So... We, we love hot dogs. They're a very American food. It would be better than turkey. As the old saying goes, though, we know what's in a turkey, but no one actually knows what is in any hot dog that you've ever eaten before in your life. Just like the Ten Commandments. I knew you were wondering how I was going to get around there. So we, we have people in our country who argue vociferously To have the Ten Commandments posted in courtrooms and to have the Ten Commandments in our public schools, and this is where our country's gone wrong is that we don't have these around. But I'm curious, and I think that they have a point because people don't generally know the Ten Commandments, but I would be curious to see if even those people can, on their own, give me every single one of the Ten Commandments. Most Americans don't. But to be honest, most professing Christian Americans don't. In preparation for the release of a movie about the Ten Commandments back in 2012, a research company named Kelton Research did a survey of a thousand people. I'm sure that this was not a terribly scientific survey, but nevertheless, they they were trying to see if people knew better the Ten Commandments or the ingredients of a Big Mac. And it turns out that in general, people know the ingredients of a Big Mac better, likely because they remember the song for a Big Mac, uh, you know, two all-beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions, anna, sesame seed bun. But the interesting thing was that even amongst regular Americans, while they knew the Big Mac better, amongst those who didn't just identify as evangelical, which we found is actually part of the key in polling Christians, is not asking people if they're evangelical, but asking people if they attend church regularly. People who attended church regularly more often knew that a Big Mac had two all beef patties and lettuce than they did remember that thou shalt not murder and thou shalt not steal were part of the Ten Commandments. Now, maybe they picked the worst 1,000 people that they could have picked, right? Nevertheless, I don't think it's far away to say that most of us don't know all of the Ten Commandments. Now, we're not going to rectify all of that today. We will get a chance to speak about the goodness of the commands, their purpose and nature, and how they were to function in Israel, no less than they are for us. They are good for us. They are not just commands, but they are a way of life that we ought to embrace and live out each day. To do that, let us first turn to the Word of God in the book of Exodus and read Exodus twenty and the Ten Commandments. There in Exodus 20, the word of the Lord says this, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. While Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is the word of our God. First thing I would like to put before you this morning is the inclusivity of the words, the inclusivity of these words. We tend to read the words of the Ten Commandments simply as like straightforward injunctions against certain behaviors. Yes, we are not to steal. Got it. Okay. Murder is off of the order of the day good to know especially during this christmas season uh, but one of the things that we need to understand is that these words are not limited in their meanings to these straightforward commands and we actually have two very unique and very long passages that look at how the bible treats these commands and notices that it doesn't treat them just as a a doctrine against the very thing that it's saying Rather, each of these particular commands seems to have a meaning that lingers and colors life far beyond a a small range of meaning. It's got a rather large range of meaning. The first of these passages is the almost entirety of the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, Moses repeats these Ten Commandments for the people in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Then basically from Deuteronomy chapter 6 all the way through Deuteronomy 26, we have Moses laying forward laws and commandments for his people that are based off of those 10. You can kind of track it as you go through. So for instance, I think that when Moses gets around to talking about murder, he says, do not murder. He explicates what that means for us in Deuteronomy 19 and following. The real issue with this command is not simply that you not murder other people, but that justice is seen to be done amongst the people of God. We are meant to prevent unintended casualties, that we think through our actions and the effects that they have on the lives of other people. That We are to be the kind of people who punish the guilty and make sure that we protect the innocent and that we pursue justice with all that we can muster. But it's not just the book of Deuteronomy. I preached through that, so even today as we go through these commandments, we're going to go through them relatively quickly. You can find that it was preached in 2017. I'm sure that there are plenty of things in those that I disagree with now, but nevertheless, I think that they're there and uh, use to you. The point is simply this. When Moses talks about adultery, when Moses talks about murder, when Moses talks about any of these commandments, he's not limiting the understanding of that commandment simply to the un or the intentional end of another's life in vengeance, whether it's dealing with murder or simply to the act of adultery when he says, you shall not commit adultery. But he believes that to truly understand these commandments, one must understand the concept of justice from God's view. To know what it means not to murder is to know what it means to pursue justice. Jesus does this as well. In a much shorter sermon than Moses's. I think patterned off of Deuteronomy for a good reason. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 5 about murder. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the fire of hell. And Jesus begins by saying, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And he doesn't mean that to say, well, yeah, this was said of old, but that doesn't matter anymore. I'm going to tell you to ignore that. Certainly, Jesus doesn't think it's okay to murder people. What he is saying is that if you only take that command as as being about murder, you misunderstand the command. I am going to explain it to you. Anger is wrong, and it's out. Insults, wrong, and they're out. The way we pursue relationships for Jesus is at the heart of what it means not to murder. Murder becomes, then, just the final and most obvious step in hating someone. But for Jesus, the harm is done much earlier than this. Moses sees an import from the command toward justice and Jesus toward relationships. For either one, though, the simple command not to murder meant more than just not murdering somebody. It went far beyond that. This is something of the way that all the laws in the Old Testament are to work. When Jesus has the question asked to him, what is the greatest commandment? What does he say? He says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. On these laws hang all of the laws and the prophets. Right? What he means by that, is that everything that we read the ten commandments themselves are an extrapolation from those two laws and all of the other laws are an extrapolation from the ten commandments it's sort of like they just grow as you go down as you as some people say double click into them they sort of expand and you can see other areas where these laws are then applied this is how all of those commands work and speaking of them as commands let's then talk about the impediment of the words. Our second point then will be about the impediment of the words. There is an impediment to these words in their ability to be applied broadly to everyone who might come across them and read them. There's an issue with who these words are issued to and the context that they are spoken in. In America, for instance, we have long had such things posted in our courts and in our legislative halls. They do indeed form a good deal of the basis of our laws. And even today, I think that we are right to say that especially what we call the second tablet of the law, these laws that happen to talk about how we are to relate to other people, like not murdering, not stealing, things like that, those are the basis of good laws civilly for the people of the world. But at the same time, it's also clear that these are not and cannot be the laws of our land. For one we're not unified around a single religion, and we never have been. As a Baptist, I wholeheartedly desire and agree with the separation of church and state. And it's impossible to maintain that if the Ten Commandments were truly central to our understanding of American law, that we would be able to have that sort of separation. In the very first commandment, you have to answer the question of, who is the Lord? What is he like? How is he to be worshiped? How are we to understand the nature of God and how we are to pursue Him and where He is to be found? I I am not someone who confesses in Allah. I, I don't really care what Allah is suspected of insisting that His people bring Him and do in society. Nor am I a Mormon, a Sikh, or a Buddhist. I don't want any of them to have a say in how I approach God. And I suspect The same goes for them to me. But even closer to home, I don't want other Baptists telling me what I am to think about God. I don't want Presbyterians doing it, no matter how well-intentioned and how orthodox. We are going to diverge on a great number of these issues. So posting these things to me seems a bit odd. It's understandable and it's laudable in its way. But when we isolate the commandments, when we just list the commandments... We forget the context in which they were given, and these commandments are specifically for God's people. They are not for all people. Now, that doesn't mean that all people are not held accountable to them, but it does mean that these are given in a context in which God is speaking directly to his people. This is not going to clear up how we legislate morality, which apparently we're back on we, we were told that for a long time, you can't legislate morality, but apparently you can now. Everybody agrees on that. We're trying to do that all the time. It's good. I don't know how to do that best in a pluralistic society, I'll be honest with you. I don't. Not, I, don't even, I don't even necessarily have the best idea of how Christians or what laws Christians should seek to implement given both our moral commitment to the Lord and our desire for the separation of church and state. These are incredibly difficult things that are not so easily handled But when the words that are spoken here are clearly meant for is that the people of God who are called by God, graced by the Lord to come to his side, loved by the Lord in salvation, and freed by the bonds of the Lord, the Lord has called them and said, these are for you. It's important that the Lord did not speak these things when his people were in Egypt. He could have easily looked at his people and the Egyptians and through Moses said, you are to tell everybody that these are the ways that they have to live their lives. He could have postponed the giving of these laws until the entrance to the promised land in the hearing of all the Canaanites and said, these are the laws of the Lord the God, the Lord of all of the earth. But he doesn't do that. He isolates his people in the wilderness at a mountain and says, these are your laws. These are for you. Third, let's talk about the importance of the words. It is one thing to say that these are commands. They're also known as the Decalogue, which simply means the Ten Words. And this is based off of the very first thing that is said in chapter 20, that God spoke all these words. It doesn't say he spoke all these commandments, but all these words. Now, quite clearly, they're commands, right? They're in the imperative mode. They're telling you, you can't do these things. You are to do this. You're not to do this. So there's an aspect of them that are quite clearly commands for us. They're very black and white. You can't do this. You are to do this. But calling them commands and only calling them commands gives them something of an edge, a, a black and a whiteness that I'm not sure that they were meant to have. And this is especially true when you see how Jesus himself handles them. In the Sermon on the Mount, he, he makes it less legal and more relational. This is the way you are to live. Think of it in terms of joining the Marines you're going to go into the Marines, the Marines are going to tell you, if you're going to be a Marine, you're going to wake up at this time. You're going to do PT at this time in this way. You're going to eat now. This is what you're going to eat. You're going to have certain responsibilities. You're going to have certain relationships that you have to handle in the appropriate way. They're going to look at you and say, if you're going to be a Marine, this is the way you're going to live your life. Now, it's quite clear that those are commands that are placed upon you. But it's also clear that they're not just commands. They're trying to instill upon you a way of life. That's, a, I think, a somewhat extreme example, but I, I don't think that it's necessarily wrong to think that that's precisely the thing that God is pressing into his people. These aren't just commands for you. This is meant to be a way of life. This is how you are to handle yourself. It might be helpful for us to think less of them as commands and more of a way of being in the world, the way in which we are to live in the world. They both challenge us and give us a goal to strive for. Again, I I think that we can look at the teaching of Jesus and, and see something of this. In Luke chapter 18, a rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says to him, "'Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life?' And Jesus said to him, "'Why do you call me good?' No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, "Uh, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. It's very clear, what must I do? And Jesus points him at these commandments. And the young man says, ah, but you see, I've, I've done all those things. I don't have a track record of murder or adultery or stealing. I, I just, I have not held myself that way. I've not done those things. And Jesus says to him, okay, fair enough. I'll tell you what, why don't you sell everything you have and go and give it to the poor? The point that Jesus is making is that these commandments are to have an impact on how all of your life is lived, on all of your outlook on life. This rich young man thinks that these are simply commands that are one-offs. They're simple check boxes that are there to be maintained, but Jesus knows better. The commands are not just things that are one-off. They're not just things that that you check off to say, did I commit murder today? No, it's been a pretty good day, right? Now, if that is yes, then it Probably hasn't been a good day, and that's true, it's a bad thing, but just checking it off doesn't mean that you've done your responsibility before God. It's a way of life, and for this young man, it's a way of life that he clearly has not maintained. So he presses him, not on the commands, but on his focus, on his loves, on his heart. The young man leaves sad. The commands. That we see here have their central importance not in telling us simply what to do or what not to do but are meant to give us a feel for how we are to live out our lives how to arrange ourselves in the world by the very god who has called us into worship let's then take just a bit of time to talk about those commands and give the interpretation of the words i'm gonna go pretty high above these things and we'll take them one at a time first command is about the exclusivity of God. It's pretty clear. You're not to have any other gods before me, in my presence, above me, around me. There is to be an absolute dearth of gods minus myself. So that you can have these pluralistic societies all around them. By the way, this was incredibly radical because no one at this time believed in one God and believed that there was one God above all of the other gods and that all of the other gods weren't even allowed into his presence It was one thing to believe that Ra was the greatest of all gods, but there was always before him a a pantheon of gods. But this God says, there is no God beside me, around me. I am exclusively God. If you will belong to Yahweh, you need to know that. There is no other God for you. The second command, I think, deals with the nature of God. Quite clearly, the first command bleeds into the second. The first one implies that Yahweh is the only God. The second is there to tell you why that is the case. It's because he is distinct from all of nature. He's distinct from everything else. Everything else was created. Notice when when we read that law, he points at this threefold way of creation in the earth. There is the heavens or in the earth or the waters below the earth. That no matter where you look in creation, you will never find something that adequately sums me up. And so the the people around them would make these idols because they they found in nature something that would image an attribute that they thought their God had. We talked about the frogs in Egypt. Frogs multiplied so quickly so they thought fertility gods would be accurately depicted as frogs. And God says, that is not true of me. Because once you start to depict who I am as something that has been created, you have automatically misrepresented me. There is nothing that you can choose that would be a good representation of who I am. Nothing. God will be known not by his attributes as seen in an idol, but by the works that he has done and the words that he has spoken. The carvings of our hands, the stillness, the deadness of our idols are not appropriate ways to image God. God's nature is to be upheld by all of his people. The third command is about the worship of God. Typically, taking the Lord's name in vain is thought by many people to refer to not using the Lord's name in in a wrong and inappropriate way. Basically, on every HGTV show that you've ever seen, when people exclaim about what they see in front of them, they say, oh my. And we would look at that and we would say, that is quite clearly... Not the appropriate way to handle the name of God, even though God, by the way, is more of a title than a name, but especially when the name is Jesus and and they're using it as an exclamation or even as a curse, a swear or something like that. We know that that is wrong. It is a mishandling. It's a misuse of the name of Jesus Christ. It's a misuse of God. But I think that the idea of God's name is meant to be more in line with how we approach him and worship him. It's talking about his character. In Deuteronomy, when Moses starts to talk about this particular commandment, he talks a lot about where God will make his name dwell. And that dwelling of God's name is in the tabernacle or what will be the temple in Jerusalem. And he says, it's there that you are to worship me. It's there you're to offer your sacrifices and offerings. It's not any of the other places. So there is a way and a particular way that you are to approach God. And if you approach him differently, if you think that, that you can offer sacrifices wherever you are in Israel, if you think that you can worship him however you see fit, you are mishandling his name because his name is his right and his responsibility. So whether in speech or in worship, God's name is not to be dealt with falsely. As one commentator put it, each Israelite is to avoid any use of the divine name That would detract from how God is perceived. These first three commands imply strongly that God is to be exalted, worshiped, and known as the exclusive God according to his word and by his works. We're not to rest on our own understanding. We're not to rest on our own thoughts. We're not to take cues from the world around us. We're not to see how they handle the talking of God and say, well, maybe we can appropriate some of that. That is right out. Rather, we only rightly represent the true and living God by what he has revealed to us. And this, by the way, has come in its fullest representation and its final representation in the person of Jesus Christ, which is incredibly interesting because the New Testament says that he is the image of God. The very thing that God says you can't do, God then turns around and does. Because those silly, mute, and deaf idols do not ever and cannot ever rightly picture God. And we cannot make living beings. But God can incarnate himself in the womb of Mary, in the person of Jesus Christ, and make the image of God In its fullness dwell in jesus christ this is how jesus then reveals god to us to trust in god to rightly represent his name to rightly worship him is to know jesus christ his son the image of the invisible god in whom all the fullness of god was pleased to dwell the fourth command is about the faithfulness of god and it is something of a crossover It not only talks to us about the faithfulness of God and how we are to trust in it, but also how we are to handle that trust in light of others. In light of God, the fourth command is meant as a call for us to trust in the provision and the faithfulness of God. Six days, you're going to work, and on the seventh, you're not going to work. And friends, it's going to be okay. That's the point. You, You can rest, and it'll be okay. You can take a day off, and God will sustain you. The whole point of it is to build up a trust that God will provide for his people. But it's it's not just that. It's built on this idea that God has worked for six days in creation, and then he, he just stopped. And as you read through what the Bible says about the Sabbath, it's quite clear that the picture of the Sabbath that is given to us is not just of a weekly occurrence, but God builds Sabbaths on top of Sabbaths. It's not just a weekly occurrence where you work six days and you take a seventh off. There are also Sabbaths of weeks where things happen for six weeks and then something different happens in the seventh week. There are Sabbaths of years. If you were to take a brother in and pay a debt for him and and have him come and work for you, he will work for you for six years. But in the seventh, whether that debt is paid off or not, he rests. He's done. But it's not just sabbaths of years there are sabbaths of sabbaths of years seven groups 49 groups of seven years and then the 50th is the jubilee what god is doing is saying all of this kind of multiplies on itself moving toward all of creation moving toward all of the cosmos moving toward this idea that there will one day be a final rest when all the sabbaths are finished That you are building up by taking this one day off a week, an idea that everything is coming to a conclusion where not only God will rest, but you yourself will rest from all the toil and all the labor that you do under the sun. And you are called to trust in that. You are called to build your life around that, knowing that you can work for the Lord now. But there will one day be a rest. And this has implications for those who live with you. You can't say, well, God has called upon me to rest and so I'm going to rest, but man, you know, things need to be done out in the field so I'm glad I've got Johnny Worker with me. And God says, no, it's not, this is not a rest for those who can afford to rest. This is a rest for everything. There is rest for animals. There's rest for people. In other Sabbaths, there's rest for the land. There's rest for debt. There is rest. And in Christ." We have this rest. We are to rest in him and trust that one day he will give us the rest that we so need and seek. The fifth command is about authority. The command to honor your father and your mother like the rest of these commands is primarily there to describe how we relate to others in the world. It's like the tip of an iceberg. It's the most obvious and the first relationship that you have where you understand that there's a sense of authority above you. And throughout the Bible, we are commanded to pay homage and honor those who are in authority over us. We heard about this in Romans 13, not too terribly long ago, that even in pagan governments that do not represent Yahweh and who do not recognize their authority as coming from Yahweh, the people of God have to recognize that their authority has been given to them by God and therefore to submit to them. Now, there's obviously limits on what that submission is, but our initial gut instinct should be obedience to those who are in authority over us. Even as Peter would say, we are to honor the emperor when that emperor has no goodwill toward Christians at all. The eighth commandment, or excuse me, I skipped over a couple. They're very important. We'll go back and catch them now. Commandment six, not to murder, is about justice. We've talked about this quite a bit. I do want to make one brief note about the Sixth Commandment, that there isn't really an English word that rightly kind of captures what this is getting at. We don't want to say kill, because there are plenty of times in which the Bible commands other people to be killed. And we know that there are times in which, even in the New Testament, we we read that governments have the right to bear the sword. So kill doesn't quite capture it, because kill can also be applied to everything— But murder also doesn't quite capture this. The word that is used is always for the death of a human being, but it's not always this sort of premeditated murder. It can even be an accidental murder. So if you are wielding an axe and the axe had flies off, that is covered by this. And at the very least, one of the things that this is saying, alongside all the justice stuff that we talked about with Moses and the relationship stuff that we talked about with Jesus, is that you have to act in your daily responsibilities to avoid causing harm to others even accidentally. So when we talk about things like safety regulations in industrial places, these are good. God would uphold these. I think that they would fall under this commandment, that we have a a necessity to make sure that we protect human life. And that we are consciously working hard to do that. Command number six is about justice. Command number seven is obviously about sexuality. Again, the nature of this command is just the tip of an iceberg. It's the most basic understanding of sexuality that one can find. Adultery is right out. Sex is to be understood and enjoyed only in light of a married relationship, and that relationship is a lifelong commitment to the good of the other, and the other there not being any other of your choosing, but somebody of the opposite gender. The Bible is realistic about sex, and it upholds the natural and intended goodness of it. But we are not fools, and neither is God. With any good thing, especially with good things, The more good it can have, the more pain and harm it can cause. And this is why God sets limits on the exercise of it. And you'll remember that this second part of the tablet is kind of under the the heading of, you should love your neighbor as yourself. And it's true. Sex is an incredibly personal matter. And we, we hear people crying in the public square that, listen, what happens in my bedroom is none of your business. But even they know that that is false. Because now if you are not applauding what they do in your bedroom, not in your bedroom, in their bedroom, sometimes I don't speak so good. So if you're not applauding what happens in their bedroom, then you are not fit to hold, I don't know, whatever job you've got. You can be canceled. People will call bigotry and other things down upon you. People who pursued the sexual revolution understand well now, even if they didn't understand it well then, that what they were calling for was not a private revolution, but a public revolution. It is best for society, it is best for individuals to understand that sex is a gift of God that is only to be maintained within the bonds of a marital union. Far from being archaic god's insistence on sex inside of marriage is simply for our good and for the good of our neighbors the eighth command is about dues it's not just about stealing but again stealing is meant to be the baseline of an ethical way of providing what is necessary to others this is obviously pointed at physical property If I own something, if it is mine, if I have purchased it with my money, you are not allowed to come and just take it out of my yard or take it out of my car or just take my car, right? You you are not allowed to do that. That's stealing unless I have given you the authority to do that or unless I owed it to you. It is your property, not theirs. This is quite clear. The Bible lays this out. You actually do own things. And so, obviously, things like communism, right out. If they say, like, this is, this is the public's good. You don't own anything. It's all given to you by the populace. We know that that just, that's not, that's not right. But we also need to hear the other side of that. And that is, it's not just a law that stands against communism. It's also a law that stands against unrestrained capitalism. The Bible is very clear that people are to be paid for their work. That might doesn't make right. That just because you can cheat people doesn't mean it's okay to cheat people. To give them a fair wage is is a right and good thing. And to keep back from them is a form of stealing. And more especially than that, the poor of the land are to be taken care of. Now, this law doesn't say how we are to carry out these things or how we're supposed to do these things. But if you've looked only at this command as a way for you to establish the right of what you possess and the state not to take it away, You have missed some of the import of this. Moses explains it by saying these things in Deuteronomy 24, beginning in verse 19 when he starts to talk about this law in particular. He says this, When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow." That the Lord your God may bless you and all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterwards. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. Notice all of the possessives in there. Yeah, it's, it's your chief, your harvest. It was your field. You planted it. You went out and you, you gathered it. You even gathered it together. And by some brain emptiness, you left it in the field. And you thought the next morning when you woke up, oh, I'm going to go get it. And God says, it's no longer yours. It's not yours. It is for the poor. They're your olives, but you can't take them all. They're your grapes, but you don't get them all. You are to leave some for the poor. When we, when we get up here and we have people praying for us before our offering, I don't, those, most of you know this, but we don't write those for, for the folks who come up here when they do the, the prayer of adoration or the prayer for our offering at the end. Those are, those are the words of the people who are coming up here to pray. And while there are guidelines for those things we send out, it's interesting to me that One of the most common sentiments when we pray is this. You know, God, these things were never ours to begin with. They weren't ours. Everything belongs to you. If God says, use your money for the poor, and you don't use your things for the poor, you are stealing. You are keeping what does not belong to you. The ninth commandment is about reality. Lying isn't just about not telling the truth. It is any purposeful distortion of reality and a denial of what God has done. It is how, when you see how the world is working out, you see the providential hand of God working sovereignly in the world, the reality that he has made, and you don't like it. And you think, I will, I will change and I will manipulate reality by speaking words, by, by telling people false things, so that the world actually looks like I want it to look, or that it will look how I want it to look. There's nothing less than an attempt to be God. God will have none of it. We are to acknowledge the world that God has made, to be rightfully telling the truth and speaking the truth of what we find in that world We are to uphold the reality that we see around us. And the last commandment is about contentment. The last command is a summary command, in a sense. The fulfillment of this command will cover almost everything else that we've talked about under the rubric of loving your neighbor. To not covet what your neighbor has, to be content, means that you won't take their spouse in adultery. It means you won't steal. It means you won't murder. It means you won't lie to them or about them the sins that are rampant amongst God's people or amongst Israel would be eliminated, not only in Israel, but here as well, if we were simply content with what God has given us. And in a way, this book ends nicely with the first command. There is no command in all of God's scriptures that you can break without breaking one of these two commands. To break any of God's laws necessarily means the breaking of both of these It means that you have some sort of desire or authority above the Lord that you are looking to. The Lord says, don't do this. But your heart says, yeah, but take. Yeah, but do. And you do so because you are not content with the things that God has given you. You're not content with the way that God has created the world. And that is the reality of the issue of sin. That is the nature of sin. We think that God has not given us what we need. Or what we deserve. So we look for it. We strive for it. In many places and times that God has forgiven, forbidden, and we go and we take it. We think it's okay to touch when God has said, do not touch. We think it's okay to speak lies for our own ends, and we justify our deceptive words. We think it's okay to buck authority when we don't like it, outside of biblical justification. We think it's okay to take vengeance into our own hands. God God knows this about us. He knows that these words given to Israel aren't going to last Moses walking down the mountain. Right? Those tablets are going to be broken by the time he gets to the bottom. He knows that his people cannot live up to these things. But the grace of God is always present. It's always kind. It's forgiving. So friend, if you have faith in Jesus Christ this morning, strive for these things. Not in some silly and fool-hearted attempt to make yourself acceptable and loved by him, but because you are accepted and loved by him in Jesus Christ. Strive for these things as the way you live in the world because God holds them up for your good, for your flourishing, and for his glory. And if you are here and you don't know the Lord, I would think that these commands have to, at some level, seem far from you. Ask yourself if you truly understood them. Not even, but also including, if you've kept them. Not in their most limited state. Not as a checklist to say, Oh, well, I've never been married, so I can't commit adultery. And, and I, I, I try not to steal. Right? Not like that. But in their fullness. Fulfilling not just the very words, but all that those words imply. And if you rightly confess that you haven't, come to the Lord Jesus Christ. For his forgiveness is true. His love is rich and his mercy is deep. He died for the sins of all of those who would confess his name so that you can be forgiven when you put your faith and trust in him. And he will do the same for you. He will forgive you. He will pardon you. He will give you a heart too long after these very commands, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Let us pray. Father, we do not always love like this. Yet, as your people, we strive to. Show us where we fail in our love and give us the power by grace through faith to correct those wrongs make us, even as your Son, whose perfect love, both for you and his neighbor, is our great calling and the perfect image of yourself. As always, Father, we pray these things for the glory and in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. If you would, sing with us our song of response, Exalt in the Savior's Birth.